Welcome to the Why Your Bank Sucks podcast. My name is James, the Notorious Banker, and I'm here to tell you why your bank does in fact suck very much. As of right now, 2,554 amazing followers at Bank Better Guy. Guys, we crossed the 2,500 follower threshold. Thank you so very much for that. I really do appreciate it. Um, it happened faster than I thought. My numbers spiked in the last few days. Um, I'll give you some insight into it. I am really big in Venezuela, apparently. Um, I have a few Venezuelan followers, um, and I've had them since the beginning of my project. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of people from other countries in the world who follow Bank of America and Wells Fargo and what's going on. And all the conversations I've had with international students over the 13 years that I worked at Bank of America and even the two years that I've um, since been separated from Bank of America is international students love to have American bank accounts. You know, especially whenever they come here for schooling, it's an easy way to get money from their folks or get money from their government. Uh, wire transfers are, you know, automatic over there. They're so easy to do rather than the pain in the ass that they are in America. You know, they receive money, they send money back home whenever they need it, and it's a really important tool to them. You know, I didn't want to do a whole podcast about it, but some insight on that. Wells Fargo, our friends at Wells Fargo, decided to actually discontinue the use of Zelle, evil Zelle, as I call them, um, to people that interact with people in Venezuela. And, you know, there's a lot of political things going on in Venezuela. I am not, you know, someone who follows world news like that. I know that there's things going on and there's things probably I should be aware of. I know Venezuela was part of one of the sanctioned countries with Bank of America where there are certain things we could and could not do for um, citizens of that country. So there's some things going on and Wells Fargo um, made a decision saying, hey, you know what, we don't want to be a part of this transferring of money from the U.S. to Venezuela and back again because we feel there's some elements that we can't control. We don't know where it's from and we're not going to do it. I understand that's totally fine, but it also speaks to the level of how important Zelle is to this little failed institution that uh, the big banks have had here. You know, Zelle is being um, advertised as an alternative to sending wires and Western Union, whatever, because it's free. As long as you have someone's phone number and email address, you can send money to them instantly. Well, you know, there's problems with that. Phones get hacked. Email addresses get hacked. And money can just flow, you know, with a couple of buttons sent instantly to someone else who is then forwarding it to a bank account that is not the intended parties. And, wow, you have yourself a mess. And I've always said, I've predicted from the beginning of this podcast that Zelle will go away eventually. Uh, just because there's so many risk um, situations that banks have to deal with already. And that puts them at greater risk because it's money leaving and money receiving from sources that you know banks can't read or understand or follow they know it's coming from an outside bank and i'm sure they can see that but they can't control the other banks from stopping that from happening so eventually you'll start to see smaller banks pull out you know you'll see the pncs maybe of the world pull out and then you'll see wells fargo just like they did in venezuela pull out in the united states and then you'll see the disillusion of zell i've made that my prediction i'm gonna say it in my book I say by the end of next year, we won't see Zelle anymore because it's a good idea in theory. It's just another way, another way for people to steal money from one another. And it sucks. It just is really bad. You know, I always use the analogy with um, with bank fraud with porn. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very weird analogy, you know, because uh, one isn't like the other, but they are in so many ways. So, you know, the thing with bank fraud is... 
you know, you think about the Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio days, where people were, you know, making fake checks and going to banks all across the country, posing as lawyers, doctors, whatever, and stealing money from these branch banks, from these people back in the 50s and 60s. And then you start to have some, you know, a little bit more intense check fraud, and then you have wire fraud, and then the internet started, you know, being more available. Then you had internet fraud, where people are breaking into bank accounts, people are doing this, that, and the other thing. And it's stuff that's done from the convenience of home or internet cafes in Nigeria, for instance. And then now you just have this other level where everyone's a freaking computer voice, okay? Everyone has an iPhone or everyone has an Android phone. And with anyone with a little bit of smarts can snoop on someone else and steal passwords, steal names. And even though it's kind of low-rent stealing um, identification that way, it's very easy to use Zelle or to use, you know any other means of mobile banking to, uh, for your own personal gain. And banks who want to cut jobs, banks who want to get rid of people in branches and get rid of all that busy work um, are intent on saying, hey, this is the wave of the future, but it's riddled with so many problems. And by the way, just to clean up the analogy, bank fraud and porn go hand in hand. Uh, they're very similar to me because they both had the same path. You know, bank fraud has gone from, you know, fake gold and fake currency to check fraud from catch me if you can days to wire fraud to internet fraud to mobile banking to zelle and whatnot porn has went in the last couple hundred years from you know sketches and paintings to the printing press happening and then of course you had you know dirty limericks and comics and printing and then all of a sudden film became a thing so you had the old you know 16 millimeter film reel to reel things on projectors and then of course VCRs came to fruition in the 70s so porn adapted VHS tapes and then DVD and then you know movie theaters of course and then the internet changed it all you know the internet went from hey you can you could download some pictures for a flat fee so you could download movies for a flat fee and now with Pornhub and everything everything is just freaking free now and now the porn industry has to adapt again to find a way to make money and to find a way to combat its previous incarnations I know it's a weird analogy. I know it's very bizarre, but um, bank fraud and pornography just have that natural evolution that there's always something new to have to deal with with both of those things. And, you know, what can I say? They just have some similarities. Leave it to me to bring up those similarities. And, of course, coronavirus notwithstanding, people are waiting in long lines at the bank. ATMs are running out of money. There is a need for those things. So Zelle is not going to be long for this world, believe you me. But anyway, uh, when Zelle um, got discontinued by Wells Fargo in Venezuela, I commented on a couple of English-speaking posts. They're just saying, hey, you know, it's going to end everywhere, so be prepared. Start to use other options. You know, I wasn't giving any advice how to, how to scam people, but I was just basically telling them, hey, this is what I think is happening and why they're doing it. And word spread. And just like the protest stuff, just like the PPP loan stuff the month before, all of a sudden all my posts started to get some groundswell and I started getting all these random followers and you know I got over 100 followers in a week and it was just amazing and I'm over 2,500 now. And I've said before that I've probably had probably 4,000 followers, you know, give or take at some point in time and people just get so tired of hearing about how the bank screws other people that I understand why they um, unfollow me. It's understandable for some of it because everything is a bummer and I have to try to keep myself in check too, you know what I mean? Because it's hard 
to think about all the bad stuff that banks do and my whole job is dealing with bad stuff that banks do so um you know here we are with 2500 plus followers and i'm very grateful for that and continue to share my page at bank better guy on twitter um hey some of you haven't pitched into patreon go to patreon.com slash notorious banker Donate at least a dollar, but two dollars gets you podcasts, and I just did one about sex workers and banking that you'll find really, really entertaining, and it's only two dollars. Patreon.com slash Notorious Banker. Today's podcast is going to be a really, really interesting one, one that I've been wanting to do uh, for a year and a half. Now, here's the thing. I left Bank of America August 17, 2018. That was the day of my execution at Bank of America. I was terminated, you know, with cause, allegedly, at 9.15 in the morning on a Friday while wearing a freaking football jersey. I don't know why they couldn't fire me when I was wearing a nice suit. I was fired wearing a football jersey. I felt like such an asshole. You you have friends at the bank, and that day, you know, I was sad. I mean, as sad as sad can be. That's really the only real job that I loved and had. You know, I've had other jobs working for public schools and stuff like that. And, you know, working for my mom, you know, working for my family's restaurant, that lasted like three days. But, you know, you have stuff like that going on in your world and you get attached, you know, you get attached to your office, you get attached to your computer and everything and you get attached to friends. So the day that I got fired, I got text messages from, I'm going to say about 15 people because I announced on Facebook that I had gotten fired and a lot of old coworkers reached out saying, James, are you okay? I know how much you're, you were Bank of America in Las Cruces. You were this guy. You know, whenever people think Bank of America Amador, they immediately thought you. They didn't think anything else. And um, that meant a lot. You know, a lot of those people came out, out of the woodwork and were friendly. Um, some were aloof. Some didn't give a shit. And that's fine, too. Um, but I can tell you... With the exception of about three people, and I've worked with over 100 people, with the exception of three people, I got along with everyone, and I'm really proud of that. Some were acquaintances, some I would see at the store and say, hey, what's going on? See you at work tomorrow. Some were drinking buddies, you know, go to a bar, we, you know, went out to just hang out and talk about how shitty work was, especially whenever we had an authoritarian regime over there where we couldn't talk about work at work. Um, some of them became really good friends and we went out to eat, we went out to, you know, social gatherings together and, you know, our spouses interacted with one another and all that stuff. And then some of them got borderline, um, inappropriate. I'll say it that way. You know, um, being the token male in a branch bank, you tend to get more, um, conversations than probably you would outside of the bank. And I'm not saying, hey, I'm the sexiest dude in the world. It's not about that. It's the same way that a female prison guard gets looks from all the inmates, even if she is not the prettiest one. Because, like, hey, that's the only female that we see because we're locked up in prison. So she's the hottest girl right in front of me right now. <laughs> that's pretty much my life at Bank of America. So, you know, I had the ear, I had the eyes, a conversation of a lot of amazing coworkers and you know, before I got married and, you know, even the beginning part of my marriage, I probably had some inappropriate conversations. I probably had some friendships that I stopped and I stopped thinking about. Um, you you whittle those friends down from 100 plus and then you got three or four solid friends that will be there for life. Not, you know, and I and I made um, made this point to one of the friends that I cut off and I said... 
you know, if I was broken down on the side of the highway and you saw me walking for help, would you pick me up and give me a ride to the gas station so I can get help? And I knew that that person that I cut off was going to be an absolute no. And I know that the few people that I hang around, and I don't hang around anyone because, hey, we're in a pandemic here. But, you know, the few people that I talk to would probably stop and pick me up and take me to the gas station. Or they would lend me $20 to go get a, a donut tire and to go put the tire on my car. I'm assuming the tire blew out. I'm horrible with my tires. But they would be the ones to help me out uh, when in need. And I really feel that about a lot of, um, well, like a few select co-workers and about 10 in the second tier that I think I made a connection with enough that if they were in the general area and I needed help and vice versa, I would probably lift a finger for them and vice versa. So today starts a new day with Wirebank Sucks. I am going to start interviewing people. The wonders of Zoom, the wonders of Skype and WebEx, all these things that we've had for years. We've had them for years at our disposal. You know, the world is technologically advanced and Bank of America wants you to think it's so advanced that they don't need to exist for poor people anymore. But computers are amazing, cell phones are amazing. You got Skype, Zoom, WebEx. You got all of these things, all these tools that we are using now to communicate with family members, friends, uh, colleagues, coworkers, bosses. You know, my wife is working from home now too, and she communicates with all of her colleagues and her bosses uh, via Zoom, you know, via Microsoft Teams. And she has this, and she's working from home, and she's successful at doing that. Well, I've been working at home for a year and a half now, and I never really utilized it for my project. Well, it ends today. Uh, today's podcast is going to be a podcast that, like I said, I wanted to do for a long time, and it's with an old coworker. And the great thing about this first one is I consider her a really good friend. And and the, and the great thing about that is the way that our friendship developed came just out of the blue in, you know, the last five years. And when I first um, knew of her and when she first started going to my banking center, I wasn't too keen on her. And it wasn't necessarily because of her. It was just because... She worked at another Bank of America, and she was competition to me, at least in my eyes. So it took a while to work from colleague to friend to, you know, someone saying, hey, what should I put on my resume type of thing. But, um, you know, over the last couple of years, seeing her leave Bank of America, seeing her go to another bank and working there until the very last moment when she said, hey, I'm not going to work at a bank anymore um, you know, I respected her. I respected her work ethic because it's hard to last in the banking industry. That place chews you up and spits you out, especially when you're on the lower tier. And when I say lower tier, I mean when you work at a branch, com you know, compared to the execs in $500 suits on the 32nd floor of some big-ass tower somewhere, you're not anything to them. And we made the most out of something at Bank of America Amador in Las Cruces. She made something of herself at another institution as well. We'll talk about that. But uh, my friend Nancy is going to be on the podcast, and we're going to go in-depth uh, with a pretty good interview. I'm doing this little preamble here, 13 minutes plus as we speak right now, because I don't know how long the interview is going to be, because I haven't recorded it as of yet. So it may be one full part, it may be two parts, I will let you know at the end of it if there's a part two. Um, but I know that one of the great things about 
speaking to your coworkers. He spoke to them every day for years. You know, there was a phrase that I used to use, and I don't like using it anymore, you know, work wives, because those people knew more about me than I think, you know, a girlfriend would, or I think that a really close friend would, because they see you every day. They know when you're sick, they know when you're happy, they know when you're sad or whatever. And, you know, we got to work together in the same branch for, let me just do the math here, I'm going to say about three years or so. So we, we know a lot about each other, and we both share the same disdain for um, our former company, and she shares disdain for another company as well. So after this brief promotional consideration, I'm going to um, get in touch with Nancy here, and we're going to talk about the wonderful world of Bank of America, the wonderful world of banking, how we came up through the ranks, how we worked our ass off to get where we were, and how Bank of America decided to say, yeah, yeah, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> it's going to be a fun conversation. And you got to have a sense of humor to talk about your own demise. And I know that we both do. So you're going to enjoy it. So after this, we'll be talking to Nancy. So please stick around. Hello everyone, this is James, the Notorious Banker, inviting you to join me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash notoriousbanker. For as little as $2 a month, you can support the Notorious Banker in his quest to fight back against big banks. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, and City routinely give bad service to their clients, costing customers time and money. With the Notorious Banker's vigilante customer service, I use my 13 years experience in the banking industry to show you how to challenge big banks and fight for what is rightfully yours. The Notorious Banker has helped rescue over $1 million since April 2019, and it continues to grow. For as little as $2 a month, you can also get bonus podcasts where I talk about controversial things that are bank-related that no one else talks about. I recently talked about sex workers in banking, as well as alcoholism and drug abuse within the banking industry. No topic is off-limits. Other price tiers will get you additional bonuses, but you can join the dozens of patrons and the thousands of followers on Twitter at BankBetterGuy in combating big banks by signing up to the Notorious Bankers Patreon page today for as little as $2 a month. That's patreon.com slash NotoriousBanker. Once again, thank you so very much for your support. I really do appreciate it. All right, we are back. So before I get Nancy on the line, I wanted to share a story of how we actually initiated our friendship. And it actually had to do with one of the worst days in my life, or the day after one of the worst days in my life. So November 12th, 2015, it was a Thursday. Thursday night football was coming on. It was the, the Bills against the Jets. I just remember the football game because there was this big news story the next day because they were wearing these all monochromatic uniforms that colorblind people couldn't watch the game because they all looked similar to them. And I just remember that game vividly because I woke up during the third quarter of it. And you may ask, well, why did I wake up in the third quarter of it? Well, I was going through a lot. I was going through some horrible stuff at Bank of America. I was going through some horrible stuff with friendships. And I was getting cyberbullied by... Um, some former friends of mine, and it was just this total mess where so much was going on, and I couldn't fathom living anymore. So I went to Vegas, and I went to Vegas to take my mind off of stuff, and it didn't really, you know, kind of get better from there. So uh, that Thursday, the Thursday of the Bills-Jets football game, about 8.30 in the morning, I'm having a pancake breakfast at one of my favorite restaurants, it's no longer um, on Fremont Street, and I just look up at Fremont Street and I just go, this is bullshit. Like, living is bullshit is basically what I said. So, 
I'm walking around there. I'm seeing all these old people, you know, taking, you know, pictures with their <laughs> with their non-digital cameras and they're just sightseeing with no one there. And they're just going from casino to casino to gamble and to get, you know, a 99 cent, you know, eggs and bacon breakfast or something stupid like that. I just see everyone walking around so intent on spending money or winning money from the casino. And, of course, working at a bank, you don't think of money the same way that a normal person does because... You know, thinking about money in a vault's a pain in the ass to you. I'm like, this is so stupid. And I was just thinking about those friends. I was thinking about work. And I didn't want to deal with it anymore. So I went to the liquor store at the Flamingo Hotel. I bought two bottles of liquor for $42. They're both vodkas. And um, I drank both of them. And I took some pills. And I hoped to God that I didn't wake up. I was really, I was really hoping for that. And I... I um, was posting videos on Snapchat. I had some Facebook videos going on, all while intoxicated on this vodka and pills because I was just thinking about work. I was just thinking about B of A. I was thinking about my friends. I was thinking about how shitty life can be. You know, and I had been married a year and that was going amazing, but all these other things were just weighing me down and I just didn't want to be around anymore. So I did this stupid gesture and I posted it on social media and all of a sudden, um, I just remember being on a bed, and I remember talking on my phone, and I remember slipping off the bed, like my butt fell off the bed, and then I hit my head on the bed, and then I hit my head on the floor. I just remember being kind of coherent for a while there, and then I just literally blacked out. I literally blacked out, and it wasn't until I hear, knock, 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 Mr. Baca, are you in there, Mr. Baca? And I'm like, yeah, what? And I, my eyes weren't even open yet. Do you need help, sir? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Leave me alone. And then I hear the door close, and then I wake up. I'm like, holy shit, it's dark outside. And um, the only way that I know what time it is, because my phone was dead, and I un always unplug the alarm clock in the <laughs> in the casino hotel, um, because you don't want to know what time it is in Vegas. You don't want to be like, oh my god, it's 3 in the morning, or whatever. So I unplugged the alarm clock, so I didn't know what time it was, so I immediately start scrolling through cable, uh, to see what time it was and it was you know towards the end of the Bills Jets game so I'm like it's seven it's, it's seven o'clock at least and I'm like man I blacked out for 12 hours I've never slept that much conventionally and um, I was trying to do a permanent sleep I guess and apparently I failed at that right so I woke up 12 hours later still feeling intoxicated but having the worst headache in the world I remember my sinuses were gross. I just felt like like total shit. Like I my mouth was dry. I couldn't I couldn't breathe without just feeling this dryness. And the only thing I still had around me was booze. I didn't have any um bottles of water cuz I had forgot to go make the purchase before. And I plug in my phone and I see all these missed calls. I see all these missed text messages and it's people commenting on my Facebook. And there's people posting to my Facebook wall, are you alive, are you okay, and what's going on? And um, long story short, and I had a talk with my wife after that, and kind of talked myself off the ledge at that point in time, but um, I had six people call the hotel after I did that. And stupid, it's, you know, mental health is not is not stupid so if you have an issue talk to someone you can even talk to me even if i don't know you i'd be glad to talk to you that's how serious this stuff is 
Um, but, you know, I talked myself, you know, away from stuff like that with my wife 600 miles away. And just having this, you know, moment of clarity, like, man, I need to change stuff up, like, ASAP. So I talked to the front desk who said that six people had called based on social media posts that I made and four of them claimed to be my wife. <laughs> and that was amazing to me. And I know who the four are and um, one of the four is not the one I'm talking to today. But four people, including my actual wife, claimed to be my wife saying, hey, can you go check on room whatever um, because my husband's in there and I think um, he took too many pills or he took too much booze or whatever. And that's why the the EMTs or the, at least the people that are like fake EMTs in the casino uh, went knocking to my door, they had a key card, and they went to go check if I was okay, and I was fine. Bad moment in my life. I mean, I've had a few like that. Um, the last couple were bank-related, or at least, you know, Bank of America was intertwined in that. So I'm not proud of that. And it was a really toxic relationship that I had with friends, and it was a really toxic relationship I had with work. And uh, Vegas was my outlet. I would save up money for Vegas. I would go out, you know, on the town and just drink and just gamble and forget about the problems that awaited me back at Bank of America on 250 West Amador. So, you know, I, I, I didn't do that that night. I woke up. I was dying. And I was in a hotel that didn't have very many restaurants open. And I ate a Guy Fieri's restaurant. And... um it was it was okay and um you know you see guy fury on the food network you make you figure he makes amazing food his restaurants are all right i mean i'm not i'm not amazed by him um there was this 20 dollar burger that i got and i just remember the burger uh i said i wanted it um well done and no veggies please and it had like barbecue sauce and you know two kinds of cheese on it or whatever and i said no veggies whatsoever so um they didn't put any veggies except lettuce but the lettuce wasn't like leaf lettuce and it wasn't just like chopped lettuce it was like this lettuce confetti it was these little tiny bits of like confetti that were lettuce and it was just on the burger and i couldn't like scrape it off and it was all over the meat and i was just like i'm gonna have to eat this damn lettuce burger like two hours after i tried to kill myself and it was just such a bummer and i was like i don't want to think vegas anymore but i was there for two nights so the next night, I had to switch hotels because my reservation was up, and I just picked this random hotel that didn't have a lot of gambling in it. It's called Downtown Grand, and I stayed there, and I stayed in the room uh, for a good chunk of time uh, the first few hours, and then the Paris uh, concert massacre happens where um, those terrorists went to the Eagles of Death Metal concert in Paris and killed uh, over 100 people in that concert hall, and it was a horrible tragedy and it was really bad and I was already feeling bad myself I had I'd gone to one museum to just kind of get my mind off of gambling and stuff and then I just stayed in the room and I saw this horrible death and destruction of what these terrorists did and I was so sad so I was like I gotta get the freak out of this room I can't see this horrible you know stuff going on in the news so I went up and down the strip I got a bus pass and I went to Center Strip Planet Hollywood Cosmopolitan to my favorite stomping grounds and I was not having fun. I was gambling and I was losing, but I had some good meals and I was just I was in a t-shirt and jeans. I wasn't even wearing a nice coat like I normally do. I was just trying to run out the clock so I can get the hell out of Vegas and get the hell home. So I do that for several hours. I lose track of time and it's 3 in the morning and sitting in the bus and um if you ever been in the in the city bus in vegas that late at night um it it seems like it would not take long because 
you know, less people on the strip and whatnot. Now, for some reason, Las Vegas Boulevard is jam-packed. There's, like, tons of people. It's a non-stop traffic jam. It takes, like, five stoplights for you to go through one block. It's, it's a pain in the ass. So I'm sitting in this near-empty bus, and I'm just, you know, just waiting to get to my hotel, which is on the other side of town. And I'm like, God, I'm going to be here a while. And then all of a sudden, I feel my ass vibrate. And, you know, it's 3 in the morning, uh, which means it's 4 in the morning in New Mexico. And then I see the, the call ID, and it says Nancy. And Nancy's my coworker. I'm like, well, that's weird. You know, why is she calling me? Why is she calling me this freaking late? She had never talked to me on the phone. She never texted me um, aside from, hey, when do I go in tomorrow or whatever. So I was like, that's bizarre. And then she calls a second time. And... It was funny. I was like, well, should I answer it? I was like, is this a butt dial or what? So I just answered it. And, you know, she's like, oh, hey, you're awake. I was like, yeah, I'm still in Vegas. I'm going to be here till Sunday or whatever. So just running out the clock, having a bad day. Just, you know, want get, to get to the room and get to sleep. And she was going through something too. And I, I don't remember what exactly, and forgive me for that. But she was having a, a situation and she was not feeling it. And... I guess she had no one else to talk to, so I became the probably, you know, there's probably 200 people on her phone, and I was number 200, and she's like, hey, I know that you're awake because you're in Vegas, I just had a bad night, I want to talk to someone, and we talked for 20 minutes or so, it was just, you know, just a normal, friendly conversation, one that we never had before, because, um, you know, we, she had come from another Bank of America, as I said, I saw her as competition, because she was, she was a teller, but she wanted to advance in other roles and stuff like that, but our job was, hey, we're not like the other branch, we're going to kick that branch's ass, everyone that works there is not good, we're the best, that's the mentality we had, so, you know, it, it took a while to get off of that mentality and to accept her as a colleague, and, but we weren't friendly that way until we talked that night, and it was a conversation that meant a lot to me because that was the first person that had a normal conversation with me except, a, um, hey, are you dying? <laughs> Why do you want to die? And it, it was a real bummer to have those conversations that whole next day. But that was the first real conversation I had that day. And uh, from that moment on, she has um, seen me through positives and negatives at Bank of America um, in my friendships and my personal life, you know, she saw a lot of things that I was going through and she put her two cents in and, you know, she did that from afar as a friend. And I really, really appreciated that. There are some other people that were, um, giving me advice and friendly about it, but they had their toes in the water with the other friends. So it was just really complicated. Uh, she was objective and I appreciated that. And, um, you know, she left Bank of America a couple years back, well, like a year before I did, um, through some crazy circumstances, which I'll have her talk about. And um, we still kept on from there. I put my name as a reference on her resume whenever she got another job at um, Compass Bank, BBVA Bank, and we'll talk about that as well. And she needed to open accounts on a Friday once. I opened accounts over there, although uh, BBVA freaking closed my accounts like two weeks later, just like Bank of America does, by the way, assholes. And um, they didn't want to pay me a $300 bonus for opening the accounts. Go figure. Um, you know, so we did stuff like that. And, you know, little things like that. I was like, hey, can you look this over for me? Hey, what's this about? And then she would tell me all the things going on in Compass that were different or similar to Bank of America. And, you know, our interactions with work. And that's the thing with Bank of America old co-workers is you can talk about everything else in life. It always comes back to the bank. 
You always want to talk about the bank with those people who shared that horrible experience with you. And that's what we do from time to time. You know, I don't talk to her every day, but every once in a while she'll ask me a question, a friendly question, and I'll answer and vice versa. And that's important too. You know, I, I think whenever you're getting older and whenever you're, um, you know, you don't have a lot of friends, you want to at least have a couple to run ideas off of because, you know, when you're married, you have that person who's, you know, tied to you for the rest of your life. Uh, an unobjective person, you know what I mean? Someone who wants to root for you and root for you to succeed. You need friends to kick you in the ass and tell you, no, that's not a good idea, or, hey, you should do this instead, or I really want to hear your podcast, or uh, you're doing a good job. And sometimes you need to hear those things. So I, I'm glad I have those friends because um, a lot of friends have long since gone ever since I left Bank of America. So I'm already talking too freaking much. So we're going to get to Nancy in just a second here. But I wanted to share with you my personal story of how we started talking and it was just a complete random conversation that we had never had before the day after one of the worst days of my life. And like I said, I always appreciated that. And we'll talk about that to begin this podcast. Um, but here, uh, without further ado, is my friend Nancy. All right, everyone. This is James the Notorious Banker with our first interview on the Wire Bank Sucks podcast. I'm so excited about it. You know, a year and a half of doing this podcast, a year and a half of listening to my um, horrible voice. I, I always thought I had a horrible voice. So I'm just hearing myself talk an hour at a time for 105 episodes. You get kind of, you know, it gets kind of redundant and it's something that you don't want to listen to um, all the time. I know this. That's why I like texting over talking to people on the phone. But um, with coronavirus, with everything going on with the pandemic, everyone fell in love with Zoom. Everyone fell in love with Skype. And the great thing is it's allowing us to connect to one another in a way that we never have before. And ever since I left Bank of America in 2018, you know, I have some friends that I talk to. A lot of the times it's by Snapchat or a lot of the times it's by text or whatever. Um, but now I'm actually able to, you know, hear a voice. And um, one of the voices you're going to hear right now is a former coworker of mine. And um, I've known her for about five, six years now. And we worked together for about three years. And I got to tell you, she is one of my favorite co-workers of all time, and I'm really glad to have her on the podcast. Um, ladies and gentlemen, my friend Nancy is on the podcast. How are you doing, Nancy? Hey, James. How's it going? Life life is good. I got to tell you, um, I, I haven't worked in 18 months, <laughs> so that, that there's that. There's a positive to that. You're sitting at home all the time, and then now everyone's sitting at home all the time with, you know, the fears of coronavirus going on, so... I'm normal now. I wasn't normal a year ago, and now I'm perfectly normal because everyone's sitting at home in their comfy clothes. You know what I mean? We're all quarantining. Yep. You're not sick, are you? No coughs? No. <laughs> okay. Neither do I. Um, once again, thank you so very much for um, you know allowing this conversation to happen. I have talked to other coworkers, other friends of ours about doing this and some say that they will but they're kind of afraid to for some reason I don't know why and uh, some of them have kind of come around to it so I really appreciate you doing this for me today it means a lot most so, definitely all right well thank you so um I always want to let people know that Bank of America the one positive thing that they do um is they know how to hire from all walks of life you know and it's not just necessarily race color sexuality and all that stuff but all of my coworkers have been unique in, in their own special ways. I, I never really worked with someone that was exactly like me. And I thought that that was really cool. So tell me, um, where do you come from? Where are you originally from? So 
Um, I came to B of A as a college student, you could say. So I'll start there. Um, I was in college and I was looking for a part-time job. And I had taken my resume to all kinds of different places and businesses and banks. And because of my schedule as a college student, it was really hard to accommodate um, any kind of job Definitely. at that time. And so it actually took three shots at me going to Bank of America before I actually got hired. Um, so a little bit of background. Um, I graduated with my bachelor's in business management and I had been a stay-at-home mom for two years after I graduated. And so I was looking again for a part-time job just to kind of get my feet wet and, you know, get that feel for being in the workforce. I really didn't know um, where my career was going to take off, but I knew that I wanted to do something. I wanted to do something with my degree. I wanted to build something for myself. So, yeah, I took three shots and, um, you know, now that I had the availability, um, I interviewed and I got the job as a part-time teller. That's how I came to Bank of America. Well, and that's great. And that was in 2014? 2011. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been August of 2011. And the only reason why I really remember kind of the, the date as to when I started at the bank was because my oldest was going to start kinder. So oh, yeah, it's, it's been quite some time. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's the thing, you know, time does fly by when you work at the bank. And you actually hit on two points that, you know, I was taking notes for this interview, and I wanted to be able to talk to you about a million different things. You actually hit on a couple of things. And one of them is non-bank related, and one of them is bank related. The first one is you want to do something with your degree. And, you know, I know that I got a, just a, basically a general degree myself. And my brother actually has a business degree as well from New Mexico State. And I think, you know, his thing was he didn't know what to do with it. You know, you got this piece of paper and you're like, what the hell do I do with it after I graduate? And sometimes you see the bank as kind of a, hey, you know, I got this piece of paper. Maybe I could start here and maybe this means something and maybe I could work my way up the ranks. And then another thing that you mentioned was, you know, as a student, it's hard to get your schedule accommodated. The one thing that I have mentioned in this podcast is Bank of America used to be amazing with that. Bank of America used to be accommodating. I was a college student. I used to have to drive from Socorro, New Mexico, where I'm from, to Roswell, New Mexico for college, 150 miles every Wednesday. So I had Wednesdays off for the longest time whenever I first started as a teller. And um, Bank of America doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think any companies do that anymore. So you were part of a group that did that probably for the last time at Bank of America. It was yeah. good they were able to do it, but you and I know that that kind of went away there, right? It certainly did. Uh, I mean, I, I have close to 10 years of banking under my belt now. And, you know, when I look back at once upon a time where it all started, um, there's been so many changes, you know, with 
um, just even the hiring process. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about having diversity, you know, um, the people that they hire, you know, and, and how they build those teams, right? Like, for example, um, the part-time teller position that I, that I got, they said that uh, one of the things when I interviewed that um, kind of stood out because of course I didn't have, I had no previous experience of anything. You know, I right. had experience in being a stay-at-home mom <laughs> with a college degree, you know, and so um, they look at personality. Um, I don't, I know a million different companies, they do all kinds of these personality tests to see if you're a good fit for the company, to see what you bring, like all this crazy tests that they put you through. But um, it all comes down to personality. Right. And that's how you get hired. Right, exactly. And and you said it, you know, the teams have evolved in the last few years. And one of the biggest criticisms I've had of Bank of America was, you know, they start to hire people. And this is my personal opinion. I don't know if you'd agree with it. I think they start to hire people in the last few years of people who need the job, who are people who will work there and they'll be thankful for it, as opposed to go getters, you know, someone who has a degree out of college, and they want to they want to be a manager. They want to go to regional manager and all that stuff. They don't want to hire those motivated people because it seems like the upper management always tries to find a way to suppress it. So they get someone who, you know, and no offense to single moms, I think someone who has a couple of kids who has to pay the bills, who has to take care of things, and they don't necessarily have high goals. Do you know what I mean? They they just want someone who's going to show up from eight to five every day. Yep. That, that is a statement that I'm definitely going to agree on that, you know, if, if you're good, if you need your job, just like any other person, um, you're going to stick to it, but it's different for a person that has, um, career goals or even dreams and aspirations, you know, right. like I wanted to be something I wanted to be, somebody you know and I didn't know how it was gonna turn out and one of the questions in in the interview and just like you know a lot of companies will always ask this one question that you get in any, any interview that you will have in your life is the where do you see yourself in five years I mean am I am I wrong you're, you're <laughs> that exactly is right. question that they always throw. Why? Because they're throwing that question out to see if you actually see yourself working in that company, you right. know, because they don't want to invest in you if you're not going to invest in them. Exactly. And exactly. my answer to that question when I was interviewed for just, uh, you know, at that time, like, part-time teller, whatever. And I remember I told the manager, I said, in five years, I said, I will be sitting in your chair. That is my goal. Well, that's totally ballsy of you. And that's something that I probably would have said had I not been so scared whenever I did my interview. I kind of just stumbled upon working at Bank of America. And the only thing that I remember about my interview, and is with two people, it was me and a, and a younger girl, 17-year-old girl, 
that was interviewing for the teller job with me and they did a team interview and we were supposed to sell a freaking bottle of water to the manager and say, tell me about this bottle of water. Tell me, sell this to me. Tell me what makes this bottle of water amazing. And I totally blew it. I like totally screwed it up. <laughs> and I, I, I sucked. And, and the girl that um, ended up getting the teller job was someone that I knew outside of the bank. And she, you know, at 17 years old, she had her stuff, you know, down already. She was already um, an emancipated adult and she already um, had a fiance and all that stuff. So she was really, really adult. So once I got out of that interview, I was like, well, she got it. And she did get it. She got the job and I didn't get the job. So um, basically what happened was I just went, you know, along with my merry way, just saying, hey, I had to go find something else to do now because I didn't get the job. She got the job. And the day that she took the job, um, there was a teller that quit. They literally threw their keys in the night deposit and she walked out. She didn't even give a notice or anything. And she just never came back. And they're like, um, yeah, who's that guy? <laughs> who's that guy that we interviewed? And they gave me a call and saying, do you want a job? Yeah, sure. And three days later, I started doing training. So sometimes, you know, whenever you get those questions asked, they, in the moment, they mean a lot. But at the end of the day, they're like, you know what? We need a big 230 pound body here <laughs> to take up a teller spot, you know, because we have no one else to do this. And hell, James is going to do it. Funny thing about the girl, she left after six months. I stood there 13 years. So exactly. that, that, that tells you that sometimes management doesn't know what they're doing with those things. You know, she had everything going for her. She was perky. She had, she sounded like a chipmunk. She was pretty. She, you know, she was already going to college at 17. So she had everything, you know, around me beaten circles. And I had already had a degree. I was 23. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just wanted anything and I didn't pass the test, but then I ended up passing it after they realized that, Hey, we're short one teller because this one teller just decided to just freaking quit. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how the hiring process is. Cause like you said, it's so much different now and they put so much emphasis on who's going to be here for the long haul and who's going to sit in the back room training for several weeks at a time and who's going to be side by side with a teller or a manager or whatever and learn the ropes it's a it's a huge investment because you have this person just on your side for weeks am i right yes and not only that um if you notice now more than ever um, and this can go for all banks is you always, always see that they're short staffed. Always. Yep. It is customers number one complaint. And a lot of the teams, you know, are also complaining about that because you have one person doing the job of essentially two or three people. And so there's a lot of room for error when you are wearing too many hats exactly and so training and hiring is is a very important process and i don't think that um people and managers sometimes realize that right and that's true and i think um what i do with um the notorious banker project on twitter and you know there's always people complaining about the lines and you know they were complaining about the lines 10 years ago whenever i was a teller there's why is there only two tellers and now it's why is there only one teller and that's just going to be that's just going to be the way that it is forever and that's the way that it's always been you know lines mm -hmm. at the post office you and i come from small towns 
Lions yeah. at the post office can be five or six deep because that's where everyone gravitates to. Everyone goes to the post office because that's where their P.O. box is at. And they're like, oh, man, it's a long line. Well, everyone wants to do the same thing that you're doing. And, yeah. and, and that's the problem with it. And I always tell, I always tell customers to lay off the tellers because I always said, and you may agree to this, being a teller was probably the hardest job I ever had at the bank because you have the whole weight of the world of the bank on you. The customer satisfaction score is on you because the teller, the, the customers typically go to the tellers more than they do the bankers. And then of course you got to balance. You got to make sure all your money's in a row and you got to make sure that all of your paperwork, your deposit work is perfect and there's no errors because you can get an auditor on your butt. And then you also, you know, at the end of the day, you have to balance it. Plus you have to sell just as much as I do as a salesperson, right? Yep. The tellers, you know, they, it's the front line. And, and I always joked with customers um, and in joking, you know, we're really speaking the truth, you know, right. and whenever we would have those times where we had 10, 20 people for one or two tellers, say on a Friday, on the third, on the first, on a payday. I mean, those days were hell. Yep. And, you know, I would tell them like, would you like to come behind enemy lines? Would you like to come on this side and get a feel for the pressure that those two people and those two tellers working for eight hours straight, you know, hoping that at the end of the day, they are balancing. Exactly, exactly, because you're worried about that. And then if it's like 10 in the morning and you made a mistake and you can't balance, you're like, all day you're thinking, oh crap, I hope I balance because I think I messed up. I think I gave that person 20 extra dollars. You know, I used to have days like that because I was one of the worst tellers ever, balancing wise and all that. I was horrible. And I say that on my podcast. I'm saying by no means am I an expert at being a teller. I'm one of the worst ever documented. Bank of America, <laughs> if, if Bank of America ever wants to call me out and say, hey, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because he was a horrible teller, I'm going to say, yes, yes, I was. <laughs> but the fact, of the, the, the fact of the matter is you employed me for 13 years, so I must have done something right, you know, that, that's, <laughs> and that's the way that I feel about that. But yeah, no, I hear you, you know, like there's all these people who just stand in line and wondering why does it take so long, but they don't realize that that's the whole strategy of the bank. I don't think you and I have talked about um, what the new plans for Bank of America are. They have this um, something called Vision 2021. I forget the official name for it. But in 2021, there is going to be no tellers. The lowest job on the totem pole at Bank of America is going to be relationship banker, which was one of your old jobs, one of my old jobs too. So wow. that's, the, that's the lowest job that they're going to have. But they're going to have teller windows, but they're going to try to keep them away from the teller windows. And they're going to keep the RBs on the, you know, on the platform side. And they're going to try to be leading people to the offices to open accounts and whatnot, or send them out to the ATM. How do you feel about that? Wow. I'm like shocked in a way, but not really. Um, because I mean, I, I did all those roles, right? I mean, yep. I, I spent six and a half years with Bank of America and, um, you know, I went, I started from teller and 
worked all the way up to operations manager. And it somewhere in between there was the relationship banker position. So I remember uh, a few years back, maybe five, six years back, um, when that position barely came out, um, they were teaching essentially we were the teachers right we were having to push people out yep. and we were pushing technology onto them you know um because that was the new era this is the new era you know we knew that at some point tellers were just not going to be non-existent anymore and um so when i was an rb and a relationship banker um I I enjoy teaching people about technology because a lot of people are not um, open to it or they're scared or whatever. But at the same time, I would question, you know, well, where is job security? You know, where where are we moving towards? And I mean, I'm kind of shocked to hear that that's what's coming in 2021. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's coming and it's going to be in a lot of major cities and then it's going to trickle down to the smaller towns like us over here. So over here in, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where we both reside, it's probably not going to be, you know, until the end of next year when they have to deal with it, but they're going to deal with it. You know, they're going to make sure that those um, tellers are going to be transitioned to RBs. Everyone's going to be an RB. It's like Oprah, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. It's like, you're an RB, you're an RB. And it's, it's so stupid because everyone's a freaking manager now. Everyone's a supervisor, if you will. And there's no underlings. But what happens with that is, and you know this, is you have a sales goal as a relationship banker. So there's going to be all of these tellers that don't know how to really truly sell. And they're going to have to sell, but they're also going to have to push people outside of the bank. And, and yeah. I think that's crazy, you know, and I, and I think that that's just unfair, but you're right. You know, the relationship banker role from when you had it had a digital element to it. You were supposed to be the one to show people how to do it on the app because I was busy doing other things, you know, home loans and whatnot as a banker. And your job was to kind of be roving around saying, Hey, let me take you out to the ATM or whatever. And that's, that's going to be the reality of the banks coming forward. And, I'm just afraid of it. And, and the reason why I do my podcast is just um, a lot of people and a lot of people talk crap to me. I'll be honest with you. A lot of people talk crap and say, James, this is the future. You know, they have self checkouts at Walmart. They have self checkouts at the grocery store. Um, this is the future. You got to get used to it. And I'm like, okay, yes. Do I do those things? Do I go to Walmart self checkout? Yes, absolutely. I, I like to do that. Do I like to avoid speaking to human beings? Yes, I spoke to human beings for 13 years. I'm tired of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't want to ever talk to someone again. But you and I come from a background, both of us in New Mexico, where, you know this, um, you know, we're both Hispanic. There's a lot of older Hispanic people out there who are just afraid of technology. Am I right? Yes. They are terrified. They are just even very adamant in learning. Um, I think that in in the time that we're living and then right now to add you know the whole pandemic going on and everything and how it's changed everyone's lives um we're forced we have all now been forced to do everything remotely and online and it's a digital world so whether they 
want to learn or not, they're, they kind of have to. And right. so that's where good bankers, good teachers come in. And sometimes I would say that I'm like, God, I feel like I'm a teacher, like not a banker. Oh, or yeah. people would come into the office and, you know, we'd be like, God, you know, today I felt like I was a counselor, you know, like yeah, we're, oh, yeah. it, it, we're giving uh, marriage counseling, you know, um, you're, you're teaching your college student about finances and credit and you know so we we feel like teachers essentially when you're a banker that's what you're doing exactly and and, you know that's that's one of the things I always talk about is you know because you mentioned that there may not be job security and showing people how to do things with the app and with the ATMs or whatever and then with the pandemic going on you have these people forced to have to do these things and I think in a weird way Bank of America and banks in general are actually not minding that because they're saying, Hey, you know what? We want to teach these people the way that we've been trying to teach them for five years. And we want them to do things this way, which is the automated way, which means that there's no human interaction. So whether it's an old person, whether it's, you know, the Hispanic people that we grew up with in our childhoods and our lives, um, college students, you know, you're teaching them all these things for the first time. You're right. We are teachers in a way, but what's funny is those are going to be the last people that banks teach and everyone going forward is not going to have that kind of wherewithal to understand banking. You know, um, you know, you, you mentioned you have kids, you have two kids. Do you think that they know more about banking because you worked in banking or do you think that they're just, just smart just on their own. Do you think that you've helped them along the way learn about money because you are their mom and you worked at a bank? I think it's a combination of both. Um, the fact that um, I I did work in banking, um, <laughs> they, they've heard my rants before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I'm like, you know, my daughter, she's gonna be 15. My son is 11 and I, have had um, the opportunity to volunteer uh, in my son's classroom to teach them about banking. So, um, yes, I think that not only because I worked in banking, but because they've had technology pushed in their face since they were born, you know, they've been so exposed to it. And, And I would be like, uh, frustrated some days, right? And I and I would come home and I'd be like, oh my God, you know, um, you guys could probably fill out a simple piece of paper, whether it's the deposit slip or a withdrawal slip, something very basic, you know, that my kids at 15 and 11, you know, can do that adult, that adults are having, you know, a hard time in doing. And so with that being said, like, I always told my kids, you know, um, sometimes uh, that's what's missing in schools is the financial education part of it, because yes. nobody teaches you that they don't teach you at all. And so when I had that opportunity through junior achievement to volunteer, because um, they had uh, they had it at my son's school. I immediately volunteered, you know, and I said, I want to go. I'm like, I already do this at home with my kids. Why? Because who are their, the best 
teachers that they're going to have is their parents, you know? And so there's a lot of things that you're not going to learn out there. And then there's the flip side of it too. You know, you don't want to be taken advantage of because you're just not knowledgeable about something. Right, right. And th- and that's the thing too, like, I did learn a lot from my parents growing up, you know, it's, um, you know, my parents were both in the restaurant industry, my family owns um, a restaurant back home in Socorro, New Mexico. And, you know, it's funny, because I never saw them as these key figures in my life about learning the, you know, birds and the bees and learning about how to be an adult and don't drink and don't do drugs. You know, my parents were cool, but they didn't really talk to us about that stuff. The only way that I literally saw like money in my family was when my parents got divorced and I would hear my mom complain about, man, the bills are expensive and I can't pay this and I can't pay that. And I think a lot of that real world um, stuff that was happening in my life growing up really made me care about wanting to teach, especially whenever I was working at the bank, because you know this in Las Cruces, New Mexico, especially the first week of the month, you got those social security people, you got those, you know, um, disability people, and that's all the money they got. You know, mm-hmm. and, and they make it work, you know, like I know that, you know, you've had a car payment, you have a, a, a rent payment, I have a mortgage payment, I got all these things going on. And we take all that crap for granted. But these people go into the bank. And these are people that the banks don't like, by the way, to the general public listening at home. I've said this before, the banks don't like them because they don't open up new accounts, they get one deposit a month, $720 or whatever it is, they take it all out cash. They don't use their debit card. They go take it out in one chunk and you only have a brief moment to kind of touch their lives, but you don't, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily um, have time to teach them because they're already just wanting to get the hell out of there and spend their money. And I think that's the biggest part of why I liked working at the bank was if I got a chance to speak to them and you, and you know, this, you know, that I used to get in trouble for talking to all these homeless people, all these people that, that they didn't want in the bank, right? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I, I used to get yelled at so much by our manager. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but I loved it. And there was like this one dude, I don't know if you remember that one uh, homeless guy, he was like in a biker jacket and he always came to me and he asked for a micro loan. Do you remember that guy? Yes. And, and then I would have to go to the ATM. I was like, what the hell is a micro loan? I didn't know what a micro was. <laughs> so I used to have to go out to the ATM and what he was trying to do was he was trying to overdraft his account because he was always negative. He was always negative, like a hundred dollars or $200. Then he would get his disability, which is like a thousand. He'd have $800 um, left. So he'd take the 800 out. And then the micro loan was him basically getting an overdraft fee from the bank to take some extra money out. Bank of America calls it emergency cash, but he called it a micro loan. And, yeah. and what's funny was, and and I'm going to use a horrible analogy to the people listening at home here. I used to take him out to the ATM so he can take the money that he needed out. I don't know if he was using it for drugs or drinking, whatever. He always had booze on his breath, so I imagine he was drinking. But I, I took him out to the ATM to get that money out, knowing that there was going to be a freaking $35 fee. And I said it on the screen. I didn't want to touch the button for him. I said, can you hit that button? If you hit that button, they're going to charge you a fee, but you're going to get your money. And he hit that button with like such force and he just wanted that money out. Here's the crazy analogy that I have for you. Um, And I I know you probably know some people like this in your life. Do you have some people in your life that say, 
I don't care if my kids drink. I don't care if my kids do drugs, but they have to do it in my house. They're not going to someone else's house. Yep, I heard that. Yeah, I, I'm sure you have friends. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying you have horrible friends. I, I have horrible <laughs> friends or whatever. But there are some parents that just say, "Hey, here's a bunch of booze. Go in your room and go play." And 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 honestly, with that microloan dude, that's the way that I felt with him. I felt that I was doing a service for him by at least showing how an overdraft happened. I said, "If you hit that button, they're going to charge you, man. But if you hit it, you're going to get your money." But I just want to let you know that I want to make sure that you do this and no one takes advantage of you. And those are the kind of positions that the bank puts you in. Don't you feel that a lot of the times that the bank puts you in positions like that to where there was no winners, there was only losers? I always kind of felt that way because you can only help so many and you can't help everybody. And um, when it came to overdraft, fees. I mean, oh my God, you know, you could write a whole book on just overdraft fees. I am writing a book on it. <laughs> <laughs> because like, who has not been hit with that, or, you know, in some way. And when we're talking about, you know, these people um, that are living day to day per se, you know, with a very set amount of money, and then you you add on top, you know, these overdraft fees and, you know, it just gets ridiculous. Um, so we couldn't help everybody. Like, that's the bottom line. You know, there is only a handful of people that you could help. Yeah, and that's absolutely true, you know, and that's, that's the thing. And I think one of the things that I mentioned with my project and my podcast and stuff like that is I think that banks don't want to have those people as customers. I think one part of it is they want to just kind of put them out of their misery and say, hey, we're doing this for your own good. We don't want to charge you any more fees and we don't want to be responsible for that. So um, be on your merry way. We don't want to have you as a customer anymore. But I think another part of that is of course, banks want to have more and more wealthier customers, ones that don't overdraft, because the ones that do overdraft show up in the bank, and that's what the bank doesn't want, right? It's going to be, hey, I'm overdrafted. Let's go see James. <laughs> and I mm -hmm. had so many of those customers over the over the days, weeks, months, and years that I worked at Bank of America. But um, one of the things that I wanted to get on with this podcast was um, something I kind of alluded to just in our backgrounds um, with people who. Um, I guess need help and need teaching and need structure with their finances. Um, one of the things about you is you speak fluent Spanish. I, I don't, I, I speak what I call bank Spanish. I know how to say basic bank terms in Spanish and that's the only Spanish that I'll ever learn. I've tried to learn my stepdad, my late stepdad um, was from Mexico. And I mean, I never really picked up on Spanish and it sucked for me. But um, you grew up uh, as Spanish as a primary language in your household, right? Yes, Spanish actually was my first language. Uh, both my parents are from Mexico. And I learned English in kindergarten, I believe. Kinder or first grade. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, even know that about you. So, so you learn something every day. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot of people would always think that I didn't speak Spanish, um, but I speak it, read it, and write it. Um, and I've always, 
you know, kind of kept my roots. Um, I didn't forget the language. And, you know, I, I teach that to my kids, too. I want them to be bilingual. Yeah, and that's good. And that and that's it's really beneficial in the job market these days, you know, especially with jobs being cut here and there, you know, and, you know, just getting to the whole Spanish speaking part of Bank of America. And I think one of the things that used to bug me a lot about Bank of America was um, whenever you had a customer service need and you had to call the 1-800 number, you know, you can dial the English speaking number and get someone on the horn with three minutes. But whenever you had a Spanish speaking customer who had a problem, you know this, it would be like a freaking hour on the phone with those guys because yeah. they're few and far between. And you're like, man, does, does Bank of America really care about these people? And one of the things that I've mentioned about you, just to, you know, Gabrielle, my wife and everyone else in the time that we worked together was it kind of is a positive that you're Spanish speaking working at the bank, but also since you're the only one on that side of the bank that speaks fluent Spanish at times, all those folks gravitate to you. So you have to be like a, like a, a babysitter for a lot of these people because you know that they're not going to be able to get through on the phone. Some of them don't even want to get on the phone and you're going to have to be the one to help them through every step of the way. And I was trying to think of some of our old customers and I couldn't think of the dude's name until literally five minutes before I called you here on zoom. Um, Estupinian, was that his name? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I can't I, believe you remember. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't think of his name. I was thinking about it for like three days. Cause I've been wanting to obviously have this call with you. And I'm like, what? Yes, I remember. <laughs> and I was like, I know it's a, it's like an American word. It sounds like an American word. I'm like, what is it? And I was like, is there a P in there? And I was like, stupid yawn. And I Googled him. And I believe he passed away. Right. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I think he got hit by a car or a bus or something really tragic, you know, and that was sad, you know. That's one of the things people uh, who listen to this podcast that a lot of people don't realize. We know our customers. So whenever yes. someone at a Bank of America, and yeah, Bank of America is one of the biggest banks in the world, but someone who goes to our bank and we go, hey, Mr. So-and-so died, that hits us. That That's emotional for us because these are people we talk to we BS with, we laugh with, and um, that stuff's important too. But just remembering that name brought back a lot of memories because we would see Mr. Stupignon just waiting for you. Yes. <laughs> and, you and you would walk in and you're like, ah, <laughs> ah, like you're like, oh my God, him again. And then that, old, that old Spanish speaking lady who always rode the bus. I can't think of her name, but she had like a gigantic CD. Do you remember her? I can't think of her name. <sighs> I'm like, trying to, I had so many customers. Yeah, you had like a million. Years. Yes. I mean, I have to sit and really think of names because I, yeah, I, I never forget a face. <laughs> and if I see them out or they followed me when, you know, I moved banks or whatever. But um, yes, like you, that's part of being a banker. You know, they teach you that, the deepen the relationship. But I think that's just the human nature we need the interaction with people um and me with the spanish speakers you know i really i knew everything about their life 
like everything about yeah, their life. You were like the only person that they talked to. So like you said, you were like a counselor. You heard all their bad stories. And and that's why I was trying to think of that old lady's name because she always mentioned she had like a son. And she said, oh, I got to talk to my son about my CD. And she was always there talking about her $100,000 CD. And she never touched it, but she just wanted to sit in your office for like two hours. And you're like, ah, <laughs> leave me alone, you know? We had a lot of that too. Like how, uh, how do you, you know, keep your professionalism at the same time um, you try to be, um, show empathy to everyone, right? Because we deal with all walks of life. Right. And so you really have to have like the personality <laughs> to be able to juggle, you know, the day by day because you go to work and you don't know what you're going to get hit with that day literally like every right. day is different you don't know what kind of chaos is going to happen what customer is going to come in pissed off you know um so every day was different not one day was the same there's always something going on right exactly and you know as time goes on with these people and as banks start to get more and more less friendly you know like there's more like you mentioned relationship deepening and that's a phrase that i take to heart because you know it sounds so official it sounds so nerdy relationship deepening it's just asking questions like hey how's your kids or where are you from originally that's relationship deepening to me and a lot of the times you know banks want you to stick to a script and you're like, I can't stick to this script with this person because they want to have that personal touch. I can tell by the way they're joking with me. I can tell by the things that they say and the things that they want to do that if I talk like a freaking robot, then I'm not going to get anywhere with them and it's going to make my job harder, right? I hated scripts. I never followed them. I never I, followed them either. <laughs> I made a version of my my own, right? You know, Um you make it your own because you don't want to sound robotic. I mean, it, it takes away the whole feeling, right? Right. And right. how do you make a sale? It's by the way you make people feel at the end of the day, that's how you get them. And that's what they would train. Exactly. And, and, and that's the thing too. It's all about tone of voice. It's all about how you feel about it. And I, and I told this to Gabrielle, whenever they fired me, you know, in August, 2018, it's been a long time already. I've done like literally two years of nothing. No, I'm just kidding. I, I work hard. You know, I literally do hours upon hours of helping people a day and I get exhausted from that just the way that I used to do at Bank of America. But I used to tell Gabrielle, I was like, what am I going to do next? Like, what's my next job? And I know sales, I sell myself every day of my life. I sell myself to people as a friend. I sell myself to people as someone who has knowledge, but I can't sell cars. I don't give a crap about cars. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, do you still have your Camaro? I do. Do you? I, I love Camaros. I grew up with Camaros. My mom had like three Camaros when I was a little kid. I can give a shit what's under the hood. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like... What kind of engine is that? I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue. So if I worked at a car dealership and I say, you know, what kind of engine is that? Does it got a four wheel drive? I have no clue. I don't even know what four wheel drive is until I met my wife, you know? So like, I, I don't care enough about stuff like that, but I cared about banking. And I think yeah. the sales part of it came easy for me and it came easy for you too, you know, cause 
when you when you first um, moved to my branch, and I mentioned this at the beginning of this podcast, I did this little intro about talking to you. Um, when I first met you, I didn't know whether or not to like you. I know that's kind of weird, right? It's kind of weird. like I didn't I didn't want to hate you, but um, you actually started at another branch for the people who don't um, know Nancy, and of course, no one knows you listening to this podcast. But um, you started out at the Telshore branch, which was the branch I ended up getting fired from at Bank of America. And it was across town. It was about four miles away from where I was working at. And we then, were arch enemies. Yes, we were. <laughs> and that's exactly, branches, not that's exactly what I said. Exactly what I said in the beginning of the podcast. I said, you're a rival. Because, you know, this is, this is Bank of America's stupid way of saying things. Okay, they go hey, you know, we're all a team, all 204,000 of us. We're one great big team. No bullshit. No bullshit. Every Friday meeting, who's, who's number one? Amador? Is the Amador yeah. branch number one in sales? What about Talshore? Talshore is 10th. Come on, Talshore, you need 10 accounts today. You need mm -hmm. 10 accounts today or you're going to come in on Saturday morning. So basically what they did was they threw red meat at us. And they said, hey, um, those people in El Paso, those branches in El Paso, um, they're doing better than you. So you need to do better than them. So you're like, screw that. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to open up a bunch of accounts. I'm going to sell the hell out of those accounts and be number one. And I'm going to flip off the screen. Do you remember I used to flip off the screen? I used to get so pumped when I would get a new account or something. I just flip off the screen. I'd be so, <laughs> I just have this energy about it. So yeah. whenever, whenever you came down, I didn't know whether or not to like you, like, because I didn't, I didn't know you. Plus you're always treated as a rival because you were at another bank and I knew the people's names. I would see your names in directory. And I knew that there was two Nancy's if I'm not mistaken, whenever you worked there, right? Yes. There was the good and uh, evil Nancy. Which I one? was the good one. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember hearing that somewhere, but I, I, um, you know, I knew that you came down from there and I'm like, well, I don't know. And you know, it's, it's, it was really hard to, to assimilate because there's always that getting to know you period with new coworkers. You don't know. And, and for the people listening at home, this is, um, kind of uncensored about the bank here. Okay. I like to, I like to swear. I like to use the F word. I like to be vulgar. I like to tell dirty jokes. I like to look at pretty girls. That's just who I was at the bank. But you can't do that around new people right away. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, they'll they'll tell HR on you, whatever. I'm not saying I'm like a harasser or anything like that. I'm just I'm just a quirky person. And once you start to see similarities, once you start to talk about different things, then that's when you become friends and that's when you become a team. And I think for you and I, it took about a year and a half or so before we really truly became friends and you'll listen to this at the beginning of the podcast. Whenever you listen to yourself, I, I don't know if you're one of those people who's going to like hate listening to yourself on the podcast. You're like, Oh, I sound like that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess I'll have to experience it. <laughs> yeah. So like, no, I was talking about it and it's funny because, and you know, personal story, I shared a very personal story about what was going on in my life whenever we first started talking and we became friends mm -hmm. you, you literally called me when I was in Vegas like at four in the morning 
And I literally went through the worst day of my life before that. <laughs> I literally tried to drink myself to death. I, I, I'm honest with it. I talk about it in, in a book that I wrote. I drank two bottles of vodka. I took some pills. I took some, um, like some diuretics, like those diuretics that like middle-aged ladies use to, to pee in <laughs> water weight. <laughs> so I took a bunch of those and I took booze and I passed out for 12 hours. I didn't know if I wanted to live or die. I was going through a lot of stuff, as you um, well remember what I was going through in my life. And, yeah. um, you know, I woke up and I just was like, oh, my God, you know, this was what the hell is this? You know, who am I? Why do I why do I feel this way? And all I remembered was because it was a Thursday when I did that. And then I and then um, there was a total blur. And then Friday I had to switch hotels or whatever. So I had to get all of my crap in Vegas and go to another hotel. I like literally just blacked out from, you know, drinking alcohol poisoning probably. I didn't go to the hospital or anything, but I was really sick. So I had to go to another hotel and sit there. And I was just having the least fun I've ever had in Vegas. I was so depressed. And there was this um, breaking news on CNN where um, a bunch of terrorists in France killed 100 people at a concert. And it made me feel even worse. So I'm like, I can't go out because it bummed me out. And then I couldn't stay in because there was death on the news and there was all this sadness. So I said, I'm going to have to go out. I'm going to have to go out as much as I don't want to. So I got on a bus and I gambled and I drank some more. What a stupid idiot I was to drink some more after what I did. Um, had a good time. I, it was a decent night. But... <laughs> like the night just kind of flew by and it was three in the morning, which means it was four in the morning, your time. And then I'm sitting on this bus in a traffic jam because Vegas is always busy at four in the morning on a Friday in Vegas, like literally like rush hour traffic over there because you got all the, all the maids going into work at four in the morning. You got all the partiers still there. You got all these people still there. And then I hear my phone buzzing and then it says, Nancy, I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Like I literally there didn't. I was. Yeah, I was like, like I didn't answer it at first because I was like, this has got to be a butt dial. Like it, it, it totally has to be a butt dial. I was like, she, like she would never call. Like we weren't friends enough to, hey, call me and hey, hey, what's going on, buddy, old pal? You know, no, that wasn't <laughs> us. You know, we were coworkers. We were pleasant to each other, but I didn't know what was going on. So and then you called again, and I'm like, um, that's weird. Like. I know she knows that I'm probably in Vegas, but how the hell does she know that I'm awake? So I answered and then, you know, we talked, you know, you, you were having a bad day and yeah. I the worst day of my life the day before. And sometimes you need that, you know what I mean? And sometimes those, those bonds run deep because um, like, I don't really remember what we were talking about or what the hell we were crying about at the end of the day. Cause we get older and things, you know, move on or whatever. But that was an important moment in our lives. And I think that's when we became friends and we became comfortable with each other, you know? And I think that that's the most important thing. So I'm going to I'm gonna leave it with this part and then we'll probably do a part two of this if you're game. I know it's 12 o'clock at night, but if you have a few minutes, we could do a part two about it on this podcast. Just to leave you guys hanging on the Wire Bank Sucks podcast here. But I want to um, ask you one question, especially um, in light of just what I mentioned about our friendship. And just yeah. in general at Bank of America, um, I think it's interesting that 
the way that we're friends with old coworkers. I think it's unlike any other job out there where we love to just complain and bitch about the bank still, right? We still love to talk crap about where we worked all these years later, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy because here we are, you know, almost 10 years later and there's just so much to talk about and our whole journey, right? At one point together when we started working together um, and everything that went on at, in our branch, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, because uh, we both kicked ass, you know, we were always very, um, we were top performers, you know, and I just feel like we, we've done a lot in our careers as far as banking goes. So there's always going to be a lot to talk about. Right. And, and I think that's going to go on forever. I think we're always going to be 10, 15 years from now, you know, whether or not you and I are still talking 10 or 15 years from now, or whether or not we're talking to other people we work with, we're always going to talk about that time at the bank, because I really think, you know, that the bank does things to you, whether it's horrible stuff or whether it's positive stuff. And, and I definitely want to continue the conversation and talk about some of those things, but it's interesting how we can never let it go. And some people say, you just got to move on. You got to do this and that. But still to this day, like you'll send me stuff on Snapchat. It was like, Hey, look what bank of America's in the news. And you'll yeah. send me, it'll send me a link that, you know, I've, you know, I read and I share with my followers and, and vice versa. I share with you the things that I do. We'll never let that go. So I'll leave with this, you know, since you and I are really good friends still to this day, you know, three years after we last worked together, um, how many people do you still talk to from Bank of America? And when I say talk to, I don't mean like every day, like you and I talk, you know, semi-regularly, um, you know, because we're just talking about life and stuff like that. Um, how many people do you talk to from Bank of America? I had over 100 coworkers. So there's a few that I talk to. What's your number? How many people? I'm gonna put that number at three. At three, that's about where I'm at too. And it's funny because I think the three that I still talk to are the three that most people don't think that I would still talk to. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's not someone who was too close and oh my God, you know, the close people in my life that I try to avoid now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like talking about those people in the podcast, but there are some people that I just don't, I don't want to ever talk to again, but those were the closest ones at the bank. Yeah. Um, but like the ones that were kind of on the fringe, I still talk to. And I think it's important to just have a remembrance of that. Right. Cause it's like high school, you know, I don't want to say your age. I don't want to say my age either, but we're a few years out of high school we don't talk to everyone from high school, right? We talk to a couple of people still, right? I talk to one. <laughs> one, okay. Well, yeah, like that's me too. I talked to maybe two people from my high school and it's just because I wasn't popular in high school. And then now that I became successful and more popular, I'm like, I don't want to talk to these guys. <laughs> it didn't the time of day before, but you still want to have at least one person around you to kind of remember where you came from, right? Yes. And not only that, but like these conversations that we still currently have, um, they, our time 
our time, I say, because we're no longer there. Um, we leave, but we take everything we learned um, and the experiences. And like I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there's all three of them, you know, in the time that we were at Bank of America. Right, right. And, and, and that's the thing, too. There's a lot more ugly than good and bad with Bank of America. Don't I know it, you know, because my whole, yeah. my whole life is talking about the stuff that they did bad. And I really wanted to, you know, definitely have a conversation with you about a lot of the things that a lot of people don't think about whenever they think about bankers and stuff like that. And I think we kind of touched upon a lot of it. Um, but man, there are so many more berries on the bush to talk about with you with all of these things that we experienced in life. I think um, I mentioned obviously one of the worst moments of my life a few minutes ago. Um, you were a part of the second worst experience of my life as well. <laughs> and and the, that is your mortgage. My mortgage. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, you almost were homeless. Oh like, my God. By a smidge. <laughs> yes. I was a day away from being homeless. I, I think we were all stressed, not just you, but we yeah. were all feeling it. All our our it. manager like the at team. the time, yeah, our manager was stressed. And of course you were too, because you saw what I was going through. And then you saw, you know, Gabrielle go in and like, what the hell's going on? And you just saw just me at my breaking point. And like, literally I had to threaten to quit. I threatened to quit. I said, I'm going to quit if you guys do this. And I, I really don't believe that that had anything to do with them getting stuff done so much. I think they finally kind of snapped and said, Hey, we got to get this done right or whatever. But I literally threatened to leave and that was really my breaking point. And um, you're always going to be a part of that horrible moment in my life. So, so <laughs> take that part. but I but do. You know what? Um, the fact that we, we basically, um, so when you're, so close to your team like us four were at one point mm -hmm. um, we became family and so we were all going through it together you know your stress was the stress of the teams um, and and then the fact um, I think what got to me was that you were an employee and so we spoke about this within ourselves that if your experience, you know, in getting this mortgage was that horrible and bad as an employee, can you imagine, you know, what people, you know, that are just customers, like their experience, exactly. like why, you know, you were an employee, how can these things, you know, have happened and why? Um, and then just so at the end of the day, you know, they sell your mortgage. You didn't even make a first payment, did you? We, I made, can't we, we made one payment. We made one payment. And, one. Like, and they 
sold your mortgage. <laughs> yep. It was just kind of like taking out the trash. And th there was a lot more to it than that. You know, but it was more than just a, uh, Hey, James and Gabrielle are problems. Let's get them the hell out of here. Um, Bank of America was offering a loan program at the time that they didn't really want to be a part of. It was more for like minority people, Hispanic and black people to take advantage of these loans. This was a specific program that they offered us. And they're saying first time home buyers for Hispanic or black people, you um, only have to put 3% down. You don't have to pay any insurance on the house. It was like this sweetheart deal. It was just trying to get, you know, butts in the door and, and get butts in the offices and say, hey, you know what, you apply for this home loan and we'll give it to you because we're trying to make a point to sell to, underprivileged people, so to speak, you know, lower to middle income people. And Bank of America at the end of the day sold a lot of those mortgages because they're like, do we really want these people's mortgages? Here? No, they didn't. It was bad for business. Yeah, because, and that's the thing. And then what I came to find out with um, the person who screwed up our loan and, and like I said, it, you know, it puts the, the stress on us, me as the buyer, you as the person who helped us out. Um, all these behind the scenes people was the lady who um, initiated the home loan and she actually initiated the home loan of uh, one of our former managers that worked at the Telshore branch, you know, who that, who I'm talking about there. Um, she had a refinance of her house that got declined by the same lady. And, and she talked about that at a Christmas party or something. And I remember she was telling us that and I was freaked out. I was like, Oh my God, they denied her too. Like I, I was really just bummed about that. So come to find out that the person who did the loan for employees was something called Pinnacle club. Do you remember Pinnacle club with bank of America? Very vaguely. But okay. Yes, I so do. Pinnacle club is when you're the top 1% of sales. So it's not, it's not the top in your region. It's the top in the country. So it's literally like if there's 10,000 mortgage people, she was one of the top 100 people in the whole country about selling mortgages. And a lot of people say, well, doesn't that mean she's going to help you out? No, it actually doesn't mean she's going to help me out because how does she get to be in that top 100, my friend? What, what, do, you, what do you think is the, the reason why she's top 100? Not doing your mortgage. <laughs> yeah, not doing my little piece of crap $120,000 mortgage, which is right. nothing. $120,000 is jack, okay? So you get to be Pinnacle Club by selling mansions, by mm -hmm. selling, uh, you can sell, my, I, I've looked this up, you can sell a house my size. It's $120,000 in Las Cruces, New Mexico. If you go to San Jose, California, where all the tech companies are, Guess how much my house is. Just take a guess. For the size of your house, the size I'm going to say it's maybe like triple. Way more than that. I talked to a dude in, in um, San Francisco and he worked for Salesforce, which is one of the things that we use in banks um you know in order to track our customers and stuff like that. He worked for Salesforce and he bought a house that was smaller than mine smaller than mine for 1.1 million dollars yep oh my god so he he bought a house that's 10 times more expensive but it's smaller than mine so how does the top one percent banker or mortgage officer get to be top one percent it's not selling the most people it's selling uh -huh. the best people and and i i didn't know that at the time so whenever i got a referral saying hey this lady is the best person in the world 
whenever we gave you the information, gave you know, Gabrielle went to you and set up that phone appointment to talk to her. We wanted to give you sales credit. And of course I wanted to give you sales credit too, because we all had goals and stuff like that. Your name was on it. It got forwarded to this lady and then she totally made a mess of it. So what I've learned in the time that I am helping people here, there are people that are, that are going through the same thing that I go through every single day. So I always get people on Twitter. They're always saying, um, my, my loan officer hasn't talked to me in a week. I, I sent them all these documents and no one ever contacts me. What the hell's going on? And I'm mm -hmm. like, oh my God, they're doing thing that they did to me again. And I immediately think of these people selling mortgages to rich people instead of these people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's bad. It's bad. And I really want people to realize that because it is a stressful time, you know, because people are afraid of buying houses. Millennials, people that are younger than you and I, you know, they're, they're starting to come out of college. They're starting to make a little money and they want to take that big step into buying a house but they're afraid to because they're afraid of that conversation with someone else. And, um, you know, we have those conversations with people in the bank and what can you tell someone who walks into a bank and wants to do those things now? Like what advice would you give them knowing what happened to me, knowing what happened to a lot of our customers? One of the things that I always uh, tell people in general and I tell family and friends is do your research and don't always believe the first person um, because they can be selling it very well but then when push comes to shove they really don't know their shit yeah it's true it's absolutely true and and I tell people and we had a conversation um, Gabrielle and I with Verizon today we're trying to switch over our phones from Sprint to Verizon and oh my god it's like the worst it's torture those people are horrible on customer service on the phone. Like they're trying to sell you stuff and you already bought it. You're like, I already got, I already bought my phones. What do, why are you, why are you trying to upsell me? And they're, they weren't listening to you. And you're right. We, I think customers, we as customers, when we go into a place, we expect that the person in front of us knows more than, than us about the subject. Am I right? Yes. You're going to see the expert. Yeah, exactly. And, and whenever you get to a point where it seems like you're asking more questions and they don't have answers, you're like, oh my God, this is scary. Like, how, how, does, how does this person have this job? And I felt that way like 10 times today talking to Verizon. I was like freaked out. I was just like terrified. I'm like, they're going to pull our credit multiple times and they're not going to send the right phones. It just seemed like everything was going wrong. And with home loans, I think that's the thing. I think they kind of like don't pay attention whenever it's someone who doesn't have a fancy house that they want to buy or a fancy house they want to refinance. And they're really only looking for the tens. It's like a guy going into a bar and he's not necessarily looking for his soulmate. He's just looking for the lady of the night. You know what I mean? The lady tonight, not the one that he's going to read books with and go to museums with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. What I think, too, is that it comes down to training, you know, um, for people that, let's say, in banking, right? Um, a lot of people get hired without having any banking experience, and that's completely okay. It's not to say that you can't be trained, 
but do we have proper training in you know in place are we really training the future bankers of america per se you know um so that these things don't happen these bad customer experiences you know so it goes back to training and i think that's where companies in general need to invest their time is the training and development aspect of their employees and who they're hiring and that makes perfect sense and and that's the thing with the lady who screwed up my home loan was it wasn't necessarily that she was new because she wasn't new she was like a 20-year employee at bank of america like we tried to do research on her on the internet you know me i could dig up dirt on anyone <laughs> mm -hmm. i can i can look up anything about anyone i couldn't really find a lot of stuff about her except that she worked for the bank like 20 years and and my thing with that is when you work at a bank for 20 years um, and there's some people that I know in our little Bank of America world in El Paso and here who have worked at the bank for more than 10 years who just don't like their job anymore. You know what I mean? Yep. They, they hate their job and they just hate being there. And I think whenever you get to be 20 years at a job, I think you, you get a bunch of um, know-it-allness, like you think that you know everything. And you're I, on that downhill. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're downhill because the training that you had, you become that person that goes, well, you know, in my day, we did this. In my day, we did that. And that's stupid. That's the worst thing to do. I think there's a, a, a learning curve for new associates. They need to learn a lot fast. But I think older associates, they need to get additional training. They need to learn how to, how to care again. Do you know what I mean? They need to learn how to understand people not be a robot and say oh i can't refund that fee there's nothing i can do or oh you didn't submit the paperwork for that home loan i'm sorry there's nothing else i can help you with no you got to have sympathy and i think i think bank of america has scripting to like make you sound like you care but what would you say if the bank or any bank not just bank of america had like a two-hour course to actually teach you to care to actually teach you to learn to sympathize, not just say, oh, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. I do apologize. How would you feel about training like that? Not just skills training, but actual listening training. Well, I think it, it really goes down to really wanting to help the customer, you know, because um, we're all customers at the end of the day, right? Um, whether we're being bankers or we're out, you know, like you buying a phone or whatever. And sometimes people just kind of lose that personal like skill, you could say, you know, do you really want to help this customer resolve the issue that they're having? Like, do you really even care or are you invested there for in a it. paycheck? Right, right. Are you invested in it? Do you, are you just there just like, ah, oh, I got so much stuff to do and everyone in front of you is just a blur. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I agree with that. And, that. and that sucks. And I I think that there's something to be said about not being in the same job for that long. And there's some people, there was an old man that worked as a teller in El Paso. I don't know if you remember, but there was a teller at the Plaza branch in El Paso. And he's like 70 years old. He was like a teller for like 30 years and he was just a teller. He wasn't even a banker. 
He wasn't even a manager or anything. He was literally just a teller. And those people you got to worry about, like you mentioned a, a few minutes ago about where do you see yourself in five years? You want to have the confidence to say, hey, I want to be in your chair. But if it's someone who's just going to work every day and not necessarily caring about the people they help, does that person actually deserve to work at the bank should be the question. Am I right? Yeah, because I mean, I, I've known people, right, that they retire from their one sole position. They never grew. So does it go back to, is it just like a person thing, you know, like, do you want to grow as an individual? Do you want to keep learning? A lot of people just don't. They just don't. They're content with where they are, with what they have. And, and that's fine, but in certain customer service jobs, it's not okay because at one point you're going to stop caring because you're going to get bored. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's all going to be the same. You're all going to have, you're going to have the same answers to the same questions. And, you know, the whole joke back in the day was, you know, someone saying, do you want fries with that? But whenever yeah. you listen to yourself at the bank, there's so many things that you say a million times over and over again. And sometimes whenever you like zone out and hear yourself talk, you're like, God, I say the same crap over and over again. I hate this. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> you, you would go to bed, you know, and, and when you're dreaming about work and your customers and this and that, that's when you know that you know those scripts by heart. Yeah. And, and it's time to move on at that point because then it just becomes automated. And like I said, it's all about caring at that point. And I think in a, in a weird way, like you made a point a few minutes ago that people just stop caring, but you can't teach caring. You can't teach someone to feel bad for you. You know what I mean? Cause okay. it's, it's in your heart at the end of the day, you want to be able to care about that person. But if you have someone who is literally like with a home loan, for instance, like the most important thing in your life, you know, this is where I want to have kids, you know, this podcast office that I have will probably be a kid's room in a few years. God, that's going to be scary. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> First of all, I don't know where to move my stuff. Secondly, um, me and kids don't necessarily go hand in hand, but like you want to be able to kind of just grow and evolve, you know what I mean? And I think um, someone who's stuck in a job like that and someone who doesn't care I think that they're more detrimental to the company than helpful because it's 20 years of being there and you're like, what are you still doing here if you don't like it? You have to like that job in order to be successful, am I right? Yes, definitely, definitely. Because you, what makes you a successful banker, in my opinion, is one, having that relationship with your customers and caring comes naturally because you get to know them personally. Um, you, a lot of the times they became your friends, you know, they beca became good business contacts, you know, etc. whatever. But you have to um, kind of be a goal oriented person. And those are the people that grow. Because you've seen it time and time. It's like how, let's say you go to a branch, right? And there's a banker there that's 
been there, you know, one, two years or five or 10 years with the same company and in comes, you know, somebody new and that new person is surpassing the one that's been there for 10 years. Yep. Exactly. And, and they're like, what the heck? Like why? But it's not necessarily like, oh, well, I've been in this company or in this role for X amount of years, so I deserve the next position up. I don't think it works that way. You know, I always said, and I, I'm a very firm believer, is that nothing gets handed to you. You have to work for it. And um, I mean, that's kind of what happened with me. You know, uh, when I became an assistant manager, there was somebody in the bank who had been there 10 plus years and I had achieved being in a management role in half his time. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and it's something to be said because, you know, I, I always talk about this as well in my podcast. Um, I had 10 assistant managers in the 10 years I lived in Las Cruces. So, you know, it was a job that people came and went. I think you were my longest serving assistant manager, to be honest with you. And, you know, that's saying something because it's such a volatile job, you know what I mean? And, and yeah. it's a rewarding job for people who work their ass off to get to there. But it's also a very, very stressful job, too. So it's not something that's necessarily a trophy. It's like, oh, hey, you're an assistant manager now. You're going to take all of the crap. <laughs> Yes. Now, now you do take it all. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's something I definitely want to talk about with you, but guess what? We've been talking for an hour and a half now. That's, that's a lot. And you know what? That tells me one thing that tells me we got a lot to talk about. So what do you say we do this podcast again another time? Yes. Yes. We got to sure. do it because I have a little, I have that little sheet that I sent you of things I want to talk about. I only got to half of them. And I think we're kicking booty at that. And to the listeners who are listening to this, um, you're listening to two skilled people talk, okay? You're listening to two former salespeople at Bank of America. And, you know, Nancy worked at another bank, and I want to talk about that in a, another podcast. Um, two skilled, you know, skilled people talking like this. This shows you one thing, guys. Our interview skills are impeccable. We interviewed people for a living. We interviewed 10 to 15 customers a day sitting in the offices of Bank of America. So we know how to dig deep. We know how to talk about the things that mean the most to us. And I think that these, that these conversations are important to the people listening uh, to my podcast to understand that, hey, I'm not just some crazy wacko who talks about crazy things at the bank. No, there's 200,000 people that think the way that we do, plus the several hundred thousand people who left Bank of America and other banks at some point. So I definitely, um, thank you so much, Nancy, for being on this podcast. We are going to record another one at some point. I'll get, I'll get in touch with you uh, with that in just a second. But um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we've, um, we've uncovered a lot about ourselves. Am I right? Yes. I really like the fact that we can go back to those roots. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's and more roots to go back to as well, you know? Gosh, are there stories to tell? And I think uh, for all the listeners, too, um, it would be interesting to hear you know, kind of like, what are some of the questions that they have when it comes to banking? You know, who, who can you really trust? 
right? And a lot of friends and family still ask me, even though I'm not, uh, I've been out of banking for almost a year now, um, they still come to me, right? Why? Because um, the trust is there. Um, they, you know, they, they trust your expertise or even me and you, right? We'll go back and forth. Hey, you know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. What do you think? Right. And right. so I think um, that would be something interesting too, to kind of get uh, a list of questions of maybe, you know, the listeners may have and what they would want to ask bankers just right. in general. Right. Holy crap. You're, you're producing my podcast now. Thank you so very much for that. <laughs> That, that that makes my job a hell of a lot easier because there's times when I don't have anything to talk about and I do take questions there occasionally. There's a couple of podcasts where I just say, just email me stuff and I'll tell a 10 or 12 minute boring story about it. And I, and I, and I love doing that because um, you know, it's an encyclopedia in my brain. I have 13 years of stories to talk about, but um, you know what? She said it. So at bank better guy on Twitter, Five seven five three two two four one two seven is the Wire Bank Sucks voicemail line. You can leave a question on there. Um, you could also contact me at jamesandnotoriousbanker.com. Leave a question. I'll get a couple of them, and we'll talk to Nancy again another time, um, and we'll answer some of those questions, and I'll get to finish off my little sheet of things that I wanted to ask her as well. But as you can tell, we have two very skilled people talking here and people who love to talk a lot. Okay, um, Nancy likes to talk a lot, but as you can tell, with 105 podcasts under my belt, I love to run my mouth. I, I don't know how to shut <laughs> up. And um, I'm going to continue to talk, my friends, another time. So uh, once again, thank you so much, Nancy, for that. And um, thank you so much for listening to the Wire Bank Sucks uh, podcast, everyone. Um, we'll have part two with Nancy really, really soon. But um, until then, my name is James, a notorious banker, and I just told you Wire Bank Sucks. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast interview with my former coworker, Nancy. There definitely will be a part two, so just please stick around for that in the coming days and weeks. I will have other interviews, such as um, an interview with a gentleman by the name of Victor, who I rescued $3,400 for from Zelle and Bank of America, so be on the lookout for that. But we will have many more interviews as the days and weeks go on, but definitely more of Nancy as well. So until then, my friends, this is James, the Notorious Banker, signing off. This is why your bank sucks.